It's been three weeks since Deshaun Watson tore his ACL, and yet the bad Deshaun Watson takes persist. Jason Braddock writes, let's also temper expectations with Kaepernick. His style is similar to Watson, but he's not to be confused with Watson. Oh, no, 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 no. No, his, his style is similar, but he's not to be confused with Watson. Oh, no, 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 no. All of you confusing Colin Kaepernick with Deshaun Watson, you need to stop doing that. That's not to be done. <laughs> what? Who was doing that? But I have the list. The Census Bureau of the United States submitted the list to me after a Freedom of Information Act request was granted. Here's the list. It's a pretty extensive list, isn't it, Jason Braddock? (laughs) No one is confusing Colin Kaepernick with Deshaun Watson. Exactly no one. How did Deshaun Watson become the most misunderstood player in sports? How does that happen? You know he's misunderstood based on the number of straw men that are being erected all around him. Typically now when you hear a Deshaun Watson take, there's a straw man erected somewhere in the neighborhood. Jason Braddock's straw man was this fake group of individuals who need their expectations of Colin Kaepernick tempered, right? What a straw man that is. I mean, who is out there running the best case scenario on Colin Kaepernick? He lost his job a year ago to Blaine Gabbert. And we've had enough scouts on the record say that he's not a starting caliber quarterback in the league. Enough of those old, crusty scouts have emerged from the woodwork. They are. They are actually living in woodwork. They are in the wood paneling. They are emerging from a secret door behind the wood paneling to remind us that Colin Kaepernick is not a starting caliber talent any longer. So no one, zero people, are experiencing outsized expectations of Colin Kaepernick. (laughs) It's just a weird straw man. And somehow that gets tied into Deshaun Watson incorrectly. Because Colin Kaepernick's playing style is in no way similar to Deshaun Watson. (laughs) But he's not to be confused with Deshaun Watson, white people. I mean, that should be the addendum to that remark. Comma space white people. I mean, who else is suffering from this confusion but white people? (laughs) It really is an amazing tweet when you think about it. It's on my timeline at fantasy underscore mansion because no one has outsized expectations for Colin Kaepernick. No one's confusing Kaepernick with Watson because they're in no way similar. Colin Kaepernick was relatively inefficient last couple years in the NFL. Deshaun Watson was the most efficient quarterback in the NFL before he was hurt. And they don't have similar playing styles either. They're fast. Both players have above average straight line speed. That's where the similarities start and that's where the similarities end between Deshaun Watson and Colin Kaepernick. (laughs) Deshaun Watson, 6'2". Colin Kaepernick, 6'5". They both run sub 4740s. One has a strong arm, Colin Kaepernick, 59 miles per hour, arm velocity on playerprofiler.com. Deshaun Watson, 49 miles per hour. Deshaun Watson is a good athlete. Colin Kaepernick is a great athlete. Colin Kaepernick, inaccurate downfield, 29.7% deep ball completion percentage, number 22 in the NFL in 2016. Deshaun Watson's deep ball completion percentage this season, 41.7%. 
number seven in the NFL. They're just not comparable, statistically. And when you watch them play, one has a savant-like feel for pressure in the pocket. He slides up, he slides back, he slides right and left to avoid pressure, to get that extra second to release a ball downfield. Colin Kaepernick escapes with his speed and more often is throwing on the run. They're just very different players up and down their profiles. <laughs> it's like that that tweet like right there agitated me. It pushed my buttons. I was triggered. That's what happened. I was triggered. Straw men and fallacies just colliding and right in my face. Like someone just threw a handful of goo, just slime, right in my face. And I'm just wiping it off, furious. That's how I experienced that tweet from Jason Burdick. Why is the immediate reflex response to compare Deshaun Watson to Colin Kaepernick? I want to rewind. I want to go back in time a couple months and talk about the expectations that Bill O'Brien had for Deshaun Watson in preseason and in week one of the NFL regular season. That's what I want to talk about because that seems to have been lost in the sands of time that Tom Savage was the starting quarterback. And last week, Patrick Doherty came on the program and talked about Tom Savage as the personification of human sadness. That's who was starting under center for the Houston Texans, who were believed to be a playoff team instead of Deshaun Watson. A healthy Deshaun Watson standing on the sidelines while Tom Savage was playing in the first half of week one. That cannot be excused away as just a a rounding error by a coach. No, 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 no. That wasn't a rounding error. Want to tweet about someone's expectations? Tweet about the head coach's expectations of his quarterback. They need to be higher than what Tom Savage brings week in, week out. I sincerely hope that Bill O'Brien is not the head coach of the Houston Texans in 2018 because he does not deserve to enjoy the fruits, the bounty that Deshaun Watson will surely provide. Because he stumbled upon Deshaun Watson after starting Tom Savage in week one. And in that game, he called plays while terrified. Just field goal after field goal after field goal when the team could have put the game away. They lost that game because of Bill O'Brien. Inadvertently conspiring to lose the game while his players are playing to win it. Week one exemplified Bill O'Brien's tenure in Houston much more so than weeks two through seven with Deshaun Watson under center. Let's go through the Houston Texans report card. Self-scouting, bad. Play calling, bad. In-game decision-making, bad. Personnel management, bad. Player acquisition, bad. It's bad, 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 bad. Get that butt chin the hell out. Because one Deshaun Watson scratch ticket, a winning lottery ticket, does not erase a long history of desperate, ill-conceived personnel moves, which now include the farcical non-moves, such as not signing Colin Kaepernick when the alternative is Tom Savage. An owner with a history of racially provocative speech can't even convert the ultimate PR layup in the face of a locker room insurrection. There was Colin Kaepernick, a halo glowing over his head, a double savior, rebuild the reputation and keep the team's playoff chances alive in an AFC where a team with a losing record can make the playoffs. But no, 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 no. And that was the final straw. Not signing Colin Kaepernick was the final straw for me and the Houston Texans. I loathe this franchise now. 
and I will for the foreseeable future. Because no one in a leadership position showed leadership in Houston this year. Dooming a competitive team to lose to a wayward Colts team and ultimately miss the playoffs. Taking managerial incompetence to new heights. That's not a team that deserves fandom. That's not a team that deserves accolades. Outside of J.J. Watt's fundraising. They deserve to lose their draft pick to a team that is acting rationally in the face of unfair criticism by sports fans and members of the sports media. Houston may have a top five pick. I don't care. They should lose that pick. They should have to send it to the Cleveland Bra. Oh, that's right. That's already going to happen. So apropos. And fortunately, because Tom Savage is the quarterback and Lamar Miller is the running back, I have no desire to select any Texans when I set up a contest on draft. And you should do the same thing. Go to playdraft.com, go to your app store, download the draft app, and set up a one-week fantasy league with your friends. Six-team league, eight-team league, 10-team league, 12-team league. In a few minutes on your phone, you can run through a snake draft, create a roster, and play with a unique lineup against your friends every week, especially now where many of your rosters are on the outside looking in in seasonal leagues. And when you sign up, use the promo code UNDERWORLD to get free access into your first contest. Now, a truly special guest will be joining us on the Underworld Pod. During my time in Las Vegas at the Fantasy Football Players Championship, he was more myth than man. A redraft legend is joining us today, Chad Schroeder. Simply the best. Go follow him at Chad. S-C-H-23 on Twitter. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. (laughs) Someone I've been wanting to have on for months since my trip to Las Vegas to the FFPC. This is the best redraft player in the business that a lot of people not heard of before. Until today! Chad Schroeder's on the Underworld Pod. Chad, talk to me. Hey, I'm glad to be here. This should be entertaining and fun, hopefully. Yes, I am just so psyched. Thank you to the FFPC, Eric Balkman, for introducing me to this world of high-stakes fantasy, introducing me to Chad Schroeder. Off we go. Your draft tactics are often discussed. I'm at the FFPC in Las Vegas at Planet Hollywood, and every time... I find myself in a conversation with another player. They ask me, do you know who Chad Schroeder is? Have you heard of Chad Schroeder? Are you in a league with Chad Schroeder? What do you know about Chad Schroeder? And I'm dumbfounded. I don't know who Chad Schroeder is. I'm new to high stakes. I'm actually new to fantasy football in the last five years. I feel like I'm playing catch up, learning about the Bobby Fisher of fantasy football on the fly in Las Vegas. And... A couple months later, (laughs) we have him on the program. And the much discussed, and it's Chad Schroeder's draft strategies that were often discussed. Just like you have chess fans at home breaking down Bobby Fischer's moves against Boris Spassky. So Bobby Fischer against Boris Spassky. That's how people feel. When they face off against Chad Schroeder in one of these high-stakes draft rooms, you always feel like Boris Spassky. So I want to start high-level. Beyond drafting good players, do you have an overarching draft strategy that you could write on a napkin? 
what I do is pretty simple. Now I do, I do have to approach it a little differently um, because I have hundreds of teams. Um, so I can't have them all looking exactly the same. If, if I like, uh, for instance, let's say I like AJ Green third overall and he's going seventh, eighth, ninth overall. I can't draft him third overall on every team when I'm picking up there. Uh, you know, that's just not going to set up well. Is that for risk management purposes or is Correct. that so you personally don't move the ADP? Because you are an ADP mover. That's the other thing I heard about you at the FFPC is that you move ADPs. That is not true because I, I hardly ever take guys until we get into the mid to late rounds. Then I'll take guys I like when I want to take them because you never know when they're going to go. But uh, I, I uh, my draft list that I use is an ADP list. It's not even my own rankings. And then on the fly, I determine – Obviously, there's guys that I don't like, uh, like a little more. Um, certain guys will have to fall, you know, a lot further than others for me to take them. Um, but I hardly ever bump guys because um, I'm I'm always trying to put together this team where if there's any chance that I can get that guy on the next in the next round, then I'm going to try to sneak in another good player, even if I like the guy that I'm hoping to get in the next round a little bit more. So when you're looking at running backs versus wide receivers, zero RB has been very popular. Late round quarterback, very popular. Are there any of the draft strategies out there that you would say you employ above all others that you say, yes, that particular draft strategy works. That's the way to go. I don't. And, and I end up trying them all, not by design. But what I usually do is basically take what, the draft has given me take the most the guys that I feel are the most explosive that are falling a little bit. Um, and a lot of times what happens, it seems like, is if a draft gets going on running backs, uh, you see more people want to get one and then receivers keep slipping. Um, and sometimes that goes the other way where it's a wide receiver oriented draft and running back values continue to fall throughout the, the draft. So then the next thing I know, I have three or four running backs after five rounds um, in the FFPC where you can play four of them. Um, and I, I in the FFPC specifically, I uh, definitely err to the side of running backs. And then I basically try to find a spot where nothing is standing out to me at a running back or, or a wide receiver position. And then that's where I see if it's palatable to, to sneak in a tight end doesn't seem too out of line one rule of thumb that i'm already gathering is that you don't like to reach that is that is correct because why reach when you never know who you're drafting against the sensibilities of your competitors in the draft room vary you don't know who they like your guy may fall to you you don't know who they're paying attention to you don't know what articles they're reading you don't know what their analysis process is so you might as well take the guy that is in the most demand with the highest ADP who you still like and hope to get the next guy on the list around later. So you're maximizing value in every round. That's, that's what I try to do. If we could distill it, conservative value maximization. That's a good, very good way to put it. And also who's to say that I'm even going to be right that I like that the player that I like a little bit more is actually going to be better 
than the player that the masses think is is going to be better and gets drafted earlier. Oh, how many times does that happen? Where you love a guy and then you feel like you got sniped because someone reached for him even more than you were prepared to reach for him, and that guy stinks. He has a terrible season. And you think back and go, oh, wow, I almost reached for that guy. Holy shit. Yeah. Now, to be fair, if I was playing one or two teams, you know, like a, like the majority of people that are saying, I would probably do it a little differently. And, and I would try to get my guys a little bit more, you know, that I really like. That's interesting. The fact that you're in so many leagues and you're managing so many teams it allows you to be more clinical because you know you're going to have ownership of players you like regardless. Correct. You will have enough teams that and enough iterations of drafts that you will eventually own all the players you like. So this idea that you need to be able to cheer for player X on Sunday, that is not part of your decision-making process during a draft. That's a freeing feeling. Yeah, that's the exact. You're, that's very well spoken. That's exactly right, and from my standpoint. And you talk about the FFPC's tight end premium scoring. Does that generally lead to tight end overvaluation? Um, I don't know if it. Uh, it does a little bit, but I almost look at it a different way. It leads to undervaluation of some pretty damn good, especially wide receivers that end up going in the seventh, eighth, ninth round. Um, And you can also get really, really good uh, explosive handcuff running backs uh, a a little later sometimes because people want to have all these tight ends. Um, If you you have some tight ends in mind later in the draft, like uh, Charles Clay was one of them I liked this year. Um, That was working pretty well for a while. (laughs) You bet it was. He was a top five tight end for a huge swath of the season. But if you could identify a couple of those guys, now you, you don't want to be relying on one only because then he can go at any time and, and, and then you're kind of screwed. But, you know, I also found myself taking um, Kelsey in the late second round when nothing was particularly standing out. Um, it seemed like a little dry area. Um, so so I do it that way too. Basically with the tight ends, I just try to find a time when the draft board Nothing is standing out to me. And then I'll look at the tight end position and say, hey, does it make sense to get this damn thing out of the way? Because I'm never going to like when I have to take one anyway. Yeah, like a savvy receiver, you seem to find the soft spots on the draft board and no one to just sit down in the soft spot in the draft board. It's just very instinctual player is what I'm you're a very instinctual player. And that's not easy to quantify or fully understand that's part of the savant quality of the guys that are at the top in that Bobby Fisher category in any form of gaming that we have. So you talked about running back. Now, why running back? Why lean running back in the FFPC? I think that since you can play four of them, um, it's really the only, well, I guess it's not exactly true, but it's one of the only formats where you can really play that many running backs. Right. And you only have to play two wide receivers. It just seems like they go off the board a little earlier than other formats, and receivers just tend to really fall at the FFPC, and you're going to be able to to get good, solid fourth, fifth, sixth receivers. So if you're not quite as strong at like your number two and three receivers, 
maybe you'll hit on your four, five, and six guys, you know. So, but as long as you're good at running back, you you should be in good shape. I won't take a if if there's a receiver that I, that uh, I think is a lot more explosive, you know, like for instance this year incorrectly or whatever, I I, I thought Beckham and Julio Jones were just a different tier of player than like a McCoy or Melvin Gordon. So I would always take those explosive wide receivers. I wouldn't, you know, push it that far um, to take McCoy and Gordon up there. But uh, I don't know if I'm making any sense. No, you're making perfect sense. I did the exact same thing. I had that exact decision point, Julio Jones versus Melvin Gordon, because I really liked Melvin Gordon this year based on the opportunity projection. I went Julio Jones just because the ceiling, the weekly ceiling can win those matchups with those 30-point Julio weeks that just have not come this year. Oh, well, right? Oh, well. I think the conventional wisdom is that someone who's at the top of the game would not allow a draft to dictate terms. But when it comes to running back, it sounds like you're conceding that demand is so high that you need to adjust your tactics and acquire running backs earlier than you may have otherwise in another format just because that's the lay of the land and adjusting to the lay of the land adjusting your valuation system based on how the community values players is not bad that doesn't mean that you're getting pushed around and you're missing out on wide receiver opportunities no you're acknowledging that this is what the demand threshold is for running back x And if you want to have good running backs, which we all do, you need to pay a premium for running backs in this particular format. That's just pragmatic. Another way uh, to approach it is if I, if I don't end up very good at running back, it it will not be unusual for me to take about seven of them in a row or seven out of eight picks running backs, like eight through 15th round, just every upside handcuff I can get my paws on, you know? You'll just tear, yeah, so that's the case where you might actually go zero RB and proper zero RB actually overloads on running back in the back half of the draft. You just rip through all those upside handcuffs. So you implement that strategy as well, just depending on how things go. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, really in the FFPC, I usually like to only have about five wide receivers on my team, five, maybe six at the most. Um and then I like to have upside handcuff running backs on my roster, whether I have good running backs or not, because that's how you all of a sudden can end up with a, a jug or not. I don't have Kamara as much as I wish, but, you know, he's a perfect example of how good are those teams now, you know? Well, I think that Kamara was the guy to get, the running back to get. Was there a better running back to draft in the later rounds than Alvin Kamara? No, right? No, and I, I stupidly took Sproles about two-thirds of the time over Kamara. I didn't handle that correctly at all. But you did draft Aaron Jones at the end of drafts, did you not? That was pretty prescient. And I'm not going to give myself any credit for that at all. Um, no one was drafting Aaron Jones in August, Chad, except you. There's good players doing it, and I'm in a lot of drafts with a lot of good players, and... When I see Nelson Sousa and others, um, you know, drafting Aaron Jones in the 19th or 20th round every time, it, it gets me to look at the guy, you know, why are they doing that? You can go to this website, playerprofiler.com, and see how dominant they were in college, what their athleticism looks like 
in five seconds. Yep. And I can call Nelson Sousa in five seconds, and and he he loves uh, analyzing film and stuff of these college players. And when I see guys taking him, if I'm not in the draft with them, then I'll take I'll, I'll litter my back end. Why not get Aaron Jones on some of my teams? Unfortunately, I didn't have the patience to hang on to him. You have your finger on the pulse of the community, and in that way, you're learning from the wisdom of the crowd, but not the whole crowd. You're selecting who you think are the best players and paying very close attention to what they're doing. Why not? Again, that's just rational. That's what you should do, especially in high stakes. The definition of high stakes is there's a lot at stake here. So we talked about draft tactics. Is there a draft tactic that you think is the most poorly executed or misunderstood? Um, I, I wouldn't say uh, when I saw that question, um, and I don't want to criticize anybody, but one strategy that I think sometimes gets carried away um, is uh, the zero RB strategy. I think sometimes people press it too far and take too many wide receivers. Um, and that happened in an NFFC league with a, a guy from Rotoviz was in my draft and he was drafting good players and, and there's nothing wrong with it. He's doing fine. I just think that he waited too long when, when there was some pretty damn good running backs to be had in the seventh, eighth, ninth rounds. And he, and he's taken, you know, he took Kenny Britt, I think as a seventh wide receiver, that's taking it a little bit too far. You're, you're uh, limiting the upside of the potential that you're getting out of your, your uh, running back crew. Uh, so I think, I think sometimes the zero RB people take the wide receivers a little bit too far and too many of them. Right, you're in every whenever something becomes popular, you'll always have the zealots that take it to the furthest extent and then they show everybody where the limits are, right? Okay. This is as far as you want to go. Let's go ahead and wind it back a little bit and find that optimal zone for going 0 RB because like you said, you go 0 RB, you implement it plenty and it works for you even in a high stakes scenario. So what is the biggest difference between drafting in a high stakes league versus drafting in a lower stakes league or a home league with novices? The biggest difference is that I would be more prone to, uh, I, I, I tend to, to wait at quarterback and, and maybe tight end. And certainly I, I try not to, it's really a bad strategy in general to draft an early quarterback and an early tight end in most formats. That's just a bad idea. Oh, early tight end, early quarterback. Wow, yeah. They want to win the most difficult way possible, right? Yeah. But in, in a home league, uh, with the, the worse the drafters are, the more value that's going to continue to fall at running back and wide receiver. So I'll be more prone to just kind of go for the kill shot and, and get a good quarterback and tight end. Um, that'd be the only difference, but I don't... That's the same principle where you're acknowledging the the sensibilities of the format and of the draft community of your competitors, and you're acting accordingly. You're not trying to always be sailing into a headwind as you slide down that ADP list. Yeah, that's, that's well put. That's what I try to do. So how much do you factor in weekly and yearly volatility in your player valuation? Does that affect you at all? Both position to position, you know, running back volatility versus wide receiver volatility, but also within the positions, the week-to-week -week stability of a player. Does that ever factor into your decision-making? Not really. I mean, I, I'm so simplistic that I don't really 
come out with a set of my own rankings and projections and all this and that. I just kind of mentally know who I like and don't like. And, and I, I use complete ADP lists as my cheat sheets. Um, and then just go from there. Um, the first draft of the season, I'll just, uh, basically be taking the highest ADP guy that's palatable left. And, and then I'll start feeling my way around and, and get more comfortable with what, what's going on. And, um, but I don't really uh, worry about uh, those things too much. Well, here's an example. Later in drafts, double-digit rounds this past summer, you could have drafted Kenny Stills. You could have drafted Robert Woods. One was perceived as very stable, Robert Woods. One perceived as quite volatile, Kenny Stills. Where would you lean when making a decision between two wide receivers with those profiles? It's a shame because um, now I own zero Robert Woods, but I would have been uh, a big proponent of Robert Woods bef- up until the point Watkins came. Right. Um, I would have taken Woods easily over uh, Stills. And unfortunately for me, Watson did come. So that got me off Woods. Otherwise, I would have had a whole bunch of them. And I still think he would have been pretty good even without Watkins hogging up uh, some good corners. But but definitely Woods. Of the ambiguity that Sammy Watkins inserted into that Rams passing game was such a shame. Because I think that we all saw the Rams turning around. We didn't see this kind of turnaround, but we saw a turnaround coming. That's why you started to see, especially in the FFPC, you see a Todd Gurley going in the second round where you do not see Todd Gurley get drafted in the second round outside of an FFPC-type format. What were we all missing with Todd Gurley this summer? That's one of the things I've gotten right, thankfully, is I, I, he's one of my most known players. Um, uh, and he, I, did, I, did skip him, um, I did skip him over several running backs that were generally going before him, like... Um, maybe Ajay and Howard and, and DeMarco Murray. Um, right. I, I was taken every single time I was taken Gurley over those three guys. So I actually liked him. Um, the reasons I liked him and maybe others missed on a little bit. Um, one of the main things I liked is that I thought he was going to uh, catch a lot more passes um, without the pesky Benny Cunningham um, having to be out there every single time on third down anymore. And, and then a Dunbar injury, you know, if Dunbar hadn't been hurt, I wouldn't have liked Gurley as much. Um, but there was absolutely no competition for any sort of uh, competition on any type of down, really. And it, luckily, it's put out that way. I love to discount previous year efficiency and buy the opportunity. I find that's the way to focus in on what matters and not be fooled by outlier seasons the previous year. Is that generally a sound draft precept to focus more on the projected opportunity than last year's efficiency? I think so, yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that. And then with Gurley, I think it hits two notes for you. So you have the projected opportunity, but then also you like the explosive players with the high upside. Hey, this guy can go out there and not only plunge it in on the one-yard line, not only catch some passes out of the backfield, give me that five catches for 50 yards, but also... Also, by the way, break off a 40-yard touchdown run as well. And that's how a Todd Gurley gets a 35-point ceiling week in, week out. Nobody saw this coming with that the Rams offense would be like this, but uh, that, that's definitely helped Gurley. But, boy, I've been asleep at the wheel on, on uh, getting Woods on free agent wires early on and, and Goff as well. It, it really 
poor on my part. I think the girly part more than makes up for the lack of Robert Woods, which speaks to this trend we're seeing in fantasy football where the running backs are now dominating the wide receivers. So when you look at the RB1 versus the WR1, you look at the RB2 versus the WR2, you look at the RB3 versus the WR3, and you compare peer-to-peer down the position, down the tiers, the wide receiver one cohort is getting crushed by the RB1 cohort. Are we in the midst of an RB1 renaissance? It it seems like it. um, I think um, nowadays you have more and more, it, it might be my imagination, but it seems like running backs are catching a heck of a lot more passes than ever before. Oh, it's not your imagination, Chad. It's a real trend. For whatever reason, the screen pass is in vogue, in vogue, big time right now. So, you know, something's, and it's obviously taken away some targets from the wide receivers. So I think that's a large part of why this is happening. I think we've had some turnover at the running back position. So there's been an influx of talent from Ezekiel Elliott to Leonard Fournette and all those running backs in between that have been drafted recently since the Todd Gurley 2015 draft class, which was stocked with running back talent. You want to include Duke Johnson. You can include Jay Ajayi. Now the trend toward the screen pass with offensive coordinator play calling, as well as the trend toward the lighter defenses. Yeah, Defenses are swapping out the bulky defensive linemen for faster edge players. And that has opened up the middle of the field. These runs up the middle are more successful. So in every phase, every facet of the game, every zone where running backs operate, it's getting easier to be successful as an NFL running back. Those are the main drivers, I believe, behind this RB renaissance. Yeah, it seems like defenses are designed to make teams drive the field and with over several plays and, and not screw up. Um you just don't seem to see the deep shots as much as you used to. Um, well, that's another problem, right? Yeah. The smoothing out of the wide receiver tiers, the difference between a mid-tier WR1 and a mid-tier WR2 and a mid-tier WR3 is as slight as it's ever been. There's very little margin now between the number 12 wide receiver and the number 30 wide receiver in the NFL. What's the cause of that? I, I don't I don't know. It might be a little it's probably a little bit fluky that it's this drastic this year, but it's so drastic, Chad. Yeah. It's crazy. You know, uh, everybody's scoring thirteen fantasy points a game now. <laughs> right. <laughs> it is. Even Antonio Brown's not been all that good lately, you know. Yeah, the Antonio Brown ceiling is coming down. Like, I can't believe in anything anymore. There's nothing to believe in in fantasy football. There's nothing. We can believe in Le'Veon Bell. That's about it. Yeah. All right. So how will this RB1 versus WR1 relative scoring shift impact 2018 draft strategies? Yes. I know the Roto Underworld radio audience was waiting for me. To start asking you about your 2018 draft concepts. Nothing specific, nothing concrete, but just a sense for how things might go next year. Oh, I got to think that the running backs are going to make another push forward just like uh, this year. Um, I, 
uh, I, I don't know. Um, luckily, I don't worry about it very much, and, and I, I wait until later in the season to start drafting. And when I let the experts bang heads and all the football guys drafts in the, all summer long, they can figure it out, and then I'll just try to figure out where they're going wrong later. But I, I think that you'll see the running backs move up some more, you know. Obviously, Gurley's going to be a lot of running backs in the top six picks. That's right. There will be money to be made for those who can call the top of this running back run-up, right? So there's a running back run-up. I said run twice. I can turn a phrase on a fantasy football podcast as well as anyone, Chad. So there will be this run-up, right? So there will be a bubble, a running back bubble, I think is currently inflating. When you can call the year that it flips again and be the guy going wide receiver heavy that year, you're going to make a lot of money. We just don't know what year that's going to be. Yeah, it, what, what's happening now is with, the, with all the, you know, the, the gap so tight between, like you said, the first wide receiver one and wide receiver threes, you can have a pretty damn good receiving core now um, and still have great running backs. Um, so definitely this year, you're not winning if you went – it's not easy to win unless you got nailed Kamara and Chris Thompson to go with your wide receivers. It's not the year to win in, in the uh, wide receiver strategies. No, and if you did go robust RB, you could have drafted Devin Funchess late, right? Was there a better late-round wide receiver than Devin Funchess? Robert Woods. No. <laughs> um, I think it's close, but I would prefer Funchess right now. I would prefer Funchess right now, too. But, uh, uh, no, Funchess is a great pick. Um, I made a lot of mistakes in my FFPC draft. First and foremost, Tyler Eifert. In addition to um, <laughs> Amari Cooper, I'm not going to get into it, Chad. It was very bad. I'm still 5-5 five and five somehow, but it's been a League of Sorrow. That should be the name of the league I'm in, in the FFPC. But I'm enjoying it. I mean, as sad as I've been, I've been enjoying it. I did draft Devin Funchess late. There you go. And there was no question about it. I was... Locked in on Devin Funches late. Were you focused on Devin Funches in those final rounds because he was available very late, considering he was going to get a ninety percent snap share? What what seemed to happen to me with Funches is, um, well, it's there's two reasons I don't have him that much um, in the FFPC. Like I said, I, I usually only end up with about five wide receivers, right? And and then I start hammering upside running backs. So I found myself in the FFPC not having Funchess because of that. Um, I called it a day at, at a certain point. You were too busy drafting Aaron Jones, which was also great. <laughs> but so that, but I do have Funchess in some other formats a little bit. Um, he did start moving up at the very end, um, and it seemed like he was moving up faster than I was keeping up my list. You know who's responsible for that move up, right? The Roto Underworld Airwaves. Yes, there are numerous FFPC and high-stakes players listening to Roto Underworld Radio, and we did a segment on Funchess every single show. Yeah, and th so thank you for that, because he, he was moving up. <laughs> it was like a rope that was getting away from you, and you just couldn't quite grip it. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of them, a little bit, though. I'm not sorry. So... <laughs> What player has been the biggest surprise to you this year? Where you look at the boards, right? You look at your teams. You look at who's scoring what. Outside of Robert Woods, who I think is just a shocker, the next biggest surprise. Goff. 
Right, of course. We'll go away from the Rams. Um, <laughs> what about at the skill positions, the non-quarterbacks? I would probably say... Uh, Thompson? Probably Chris Thompson. Yes. Um, or Kamara. Oh, Thompson, though. Thompson's small. Yeah. It's amazing, right? But he, like you said earlier, if you focus on players on prolific offenses that are explosive, you could argue that assuming Terrell Pryor can't play, that the next most explosive receiver is Chris Thompson. Yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty, man. I, we should have had him on every team, huh? In fairness, what happened to me was I was very bullish on Thompson in 2016. <laughs> so was I. Thompson everywhere. I'm like, wow, this is like if Lance Dunbar was heavily targeted. Imagine that. I was yeah. like, this is great. But didn't work out. Oh, well. I also believe in wide receiver duos. So in those middle rounds, I was focused on Diggs and Thielen. Some of my tactics worked, which is why you're five and five, right? So you have some successful tactics, right, that you can replicate draft by draft, draft by draft. And that can make up for some epic catastrophic busts. So that's what's happened, right? Well, you're not going to recover from Julio, Cooper, and Eifert very easily. No, you can't. You can't. It's over. Yeah, it's over. I know it's over. But I'm just saying, there's a reason why I'm afloat. And it's the Diggs-Thielen duo saving my wide receiver core. Do you agree with drafting a duo? Or do you like to hedge and not take two receivers on the same team? I absolutely could care less who they play for. I did happen to like Diggs and Thielen, and I have them both on the same team a little bit. But Yeah, that's it. That's it. There it is. But I didn't do it by design. You know. I just know that there's, there's a risk management component to that. You want to pick a winner in that passing game. But to me, if you think about what the Denver Broncos were with below-average quarterback play the previous couple years – That looked to me like the model the Minnesota was going to follow where you had, you know, Laquan Treadwell playing that Cody Latimer, Benny Fowler role and all of the targets siphoning out to Diggs and Thielen. Why not? That's how you can have the team's second receiver be a top scorer. Yeah, I was going to just mention Denver and then you did. You beat me to it, but that's a perfect example of another pair of wide receivers that I have even paired up on the, on some of my same teams, but again, not by design, just because I liked Thomas and Sanders, and you know I don't care if they're playing on the same team or what. You know, it's fine. So, what about quarterback in the FFPC draft that I participated in? I happened to go Dak Prescott, Sam Bradford, because I just wanted to play Sam Bradford in Week One. <laughs> that was the only reason. So, was that good quarterback draft process, or should I never draft? a second quarterback under any circumstances. Yeah, if you believed in, in Bradford uh, that much, then it's fine. Um, I uh, I drafted Bradford a lot as my second quarterback in drafts that were earlier, you know, where there were still preseason games in case right. my starter got hurt. But at that point, when you drafted, I would not usually take a, a second quarterback, although Prescott's down low enough where I might want one. But if I took like a, you know, certainly like a breeze on up type guy, if that ever happened, then or Russell Wilson, then I no no way I would ever carry another quarterback. When you talk about adjusting to the sensibilities of the draft room and of the draft community, well, as running backs are bid up in the FFPC, 
the quarterback valuations are crushed. I mean, where you can get the Dak Prescotts and the Marcus Mariotas deep in the double-digit rounds, I didn't see any reason to draft a quarterback in the top 10 rounds. Do you? Unfortunately, I usually did take one in the ninth or 10th round area. Not like in the top seven rounds. I would make an exception for Russell Wilson a little earlier at times. Um, That's the guy, right? Isn't he just the guy? If you had to pick a guy, the ceiling is so high, but the floor is high too. (laughs) Yeah. I understand why anyone gets excited about Russell Wilson. He can be your model breaker, right? If you want to have one exception to a quarterback rule, please make it be Russell Wilson. Um. Unfortunately, Mariota and Winston were two guys I drafted a lot, and they, neither one of them have been very good. Now Winston's hurt. Um, Winston got my season off to a great start. I had about 15 teams where I didn't even have a quarterback due to the hurricane. <laughs> so I care about winning championships. That's what I remember. I don't remember the teams that finished in second. So because of this, and because Ezekiel Elliott is coming back in week 16, which is typically when fantasy football championships happen. Should you be dropping Ezekiel Elliott right now or stashing him? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Um, I think in, in where I own him the most is in head-to-head contests where there's going to be head-to-head playoff matchups. And I think that I would just not be able to live with myself if I made it to the finals and he acquired him off the waiver wire and I got beat by Elliott. I, I don't think I could handle it. Um so I think I'm going to keep him in those for sure. Now that Oh, that's a good point that you would keep him if for no other reason than to keep him away from a competitor. But events like the FFPC where if you drop him, he's gone from the pool. It's a little bit different, you know. Um, Wait, what happens in the FFPC if you drop him? From this point on, any player that gets dropped in the FFPC leagues, um, they're gone. They're They're removed from the player pool. Except... For kickers and defenses. Wow, I love that. Man, that is a smart anti-collusion rule. Love it. It actually went into effect last week. People that were dropped week 10 even were out of play. Um, That's so smart. And I would definitely keep Ezekiel Elliott in any playoff structure that is head-to-head. But if it's total points, yeah. Bye-bye. You know, what are you going to expect out of Elliott against Seattle coming back rusty? What's he going to project to score anyway? You know, 15 points most. We don't know what their defense is going to look like. What, Richard Sherman's out. Well, that's true. It's not Seattle of old anymore. That's a good point. Well, they are old. (laughs) That's the problem, right? It's old Seattle. So you have an old Seattle defense, which could be more injured in week 16 than they are now. So especially in a deeper league where in the FFPC you have two flex spots, you absolutely need to roster Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, think about who's on the back of my bench in some of these leagues. And, and even more so, look at who you can add. I mean, are you going to want to add? No, well, look, who are you going to add? you going to add a third tight end? G- get out of here. Try to win. Go win. I just thought it should be discussed um, briefly, but I think that this is a good discussion, and the answer is we need to keep him on our teams. Yeah. Please do not drop Ezekiel Elliott. Now, thinking back to the summer, do you remember a player whose ADP was just shockingly high and you were just looking at it going, I don't know why this player is going in round X, but thank you. 
I'll go ahead and not draft him here. <laughs> Who was that guy that you have no ownership of whatsoever? Can I be wrong? <laughs> um, Fournette was a guy that I, you can have him. Um, he was going high. Yeah. And he did start dropping um, considerably. Um, and I still didn't take him and I should have taken him after he dropped some at the end. But Well, is that because he's a rookie? We don't have an NFL production history on rookies. And for that reason, they're necessarily significantly more risky, regardless of their draft capital. So when do you typically draft rookies? In Fournette's case, I just don't like backs like him that I don't think are going to catch a lot of passes. It's not that I thought Fournette would suck as a real football player. Um, but that doesn't mean I like points to add up a little quicker than four or five yard runs 18 times. I want to see some pass catching. And I thought Yeldon was a lot better at that than him. In the last couple of weeks, that's proven to be true. Yeah. I don't know why it wasn't the whole year, but. Oh, the, the, you're asking NFL coaches to successfully self scout Chad. <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to happen. By the way, Looking ahead to 2018, based on lessons learned from 2017, I think we can say definitively that Leonard Fournette is not going to be a good value next year. His first round ADP will be fueled by numerous long runs, and it won't be supported by winning in all phases like a Todd Gurley. I couldn't agree more. Which player's ADP did you find was just shockingly low? On the other end of that spectrum, who were you just so excited to draft? Every draft, every league, where you just knew in round eight he was going to be there and you just had the biggest smile on your face. I, I was a little ornery with, with it uh, and should have just taken him every time instead of trying to get cute. But Charles Clay was that guy for me. He, he opened up so much and in, 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 uh, not just FFPC formats, but sometimes even more so in the other formats where it's just a point of catch because he – you can wait until the 14th or 15th round oh, and wow. take a guy that you think's going to do just fine. And then it allows you so much flexibility to create a pretty damn good team. Um, so that was definitely one of them that comes to mind. Um, Here's a rule of thumb for me, especially once you get into the late rounds. Try to draft players that are good at football. And we know that Charles Clay is very good at football. You want to know how I know? He was a running back at Tulsa. Good point. How many players play running back at the college level and then, oh, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and convert to tight end <laughs> right from running back. You don't see that. It just doesn't happen. But he no. did it. He made that transition because he's just excellent at all the little things on the football field, and that gets rewarded, particularly on a team that doesn't have receivers. So if they don't have receivers outside of Zay Jones and Andre Holmes, they're going to go ahead and throw the ball to Charles Clay. Again, you didn't need some analytical model to pinpoint Charles Clay in the double-digit rounds, right? No, no. Yours is Funchess, right? Well, Funchess was mine because he was going to get a 90% snap share. He was playing with Cam Newton a higher snap share in the preseason than Kelvin Benjamin. And all the beat reports were unanimous. Devin Funches, Kelvin Benjamin, Kelvin Benjamin, Devin Funches. These are going to be interchangeable one and two, two and one wide receivers in this Panthers passing game. No one's worried that converted running back Curtis Samuel is going to siphon targets away from the number two option, Devin Funches. So if you can get a guy that was dominant at the college level at a very young age, age 19, 
he was the focal point of that Michigan offense, then yeah, I'm going to go ahead and pick the guy that has the size and the explosiveness and a history of dominance at the college level and now has two years developing under his belt, now launched into a starting role. Yeah, you know what? With Cam Newton, not exactly a low-volume quarterback, I'm going to take that guy every time in the second round. You want explosiveness? He checks that box. You want opportunity? He checks that box. You want value? He's available late. Like, what am I missing here? It turns out I was missing nothing. I was missing no. nothing. I was missing nothing. The only people missing anything were members of the Carolina coaching staff who continued to play Kelvin Benjamin over Devin Funches in particular situations. But then finally someone in that Carolina organization came to their senses and said, get this guy out of here. He's an albatross around our quarterback's neck. Install Devin Funches as the primary option, the primary read in our read progressions. Get him running that high-volume, intermediate flanker route tree and feed your best playmaker. That happens to be Devin Funches. Thank God someone turned their brain on in Carolina. Look at how good Carolina's offense was, you know, that that year they went to the Super Bowl when Funches got hurt in the preseason. Um, he, he's done nothing really but hinder that offense for whatever reason. Um, I don't think he's a terrible player necessarily, but... I don't get it. I don't get what it is. that The hex that he had on Cam Newton, just based on the statistical splits, <laughs> was staggering. So he's gone, and Devin Funches is scoring two touchdowns a game, and I'm very happy. You can tell. I'm very happy about this situation. They won't get to play against my Dolphins defense every week, though. I'm... That's fair. Xavier Howard, yes. Xavier Howard, you have been roasted. Yeah, I smell something. I think that's Xavier Howard, yes. By the way, speaking of the Dolphins, why in the world have the Dolphins been on three primetime games in a row? They've been in primetime three weeks in a row? <laughs> Thursday, Sunday, Monday. Three weeks in a row. <laughs> okay. Well... A lot of sports media gas bags were also fooled by the Dolphins' start to the season. They thought that was real, even though their point differential was still negative. So you're 4-2 and two with a negative point differential. That's the best bet in the history of Las Vegas. Bet against that team. When you look at wide receivers I'm betting on, it's Alshon Jeffrey. Because Alshon Jeffrey has what we like, right? The explosiveness in a prolific offense. <laughs> we keep coming back to that, right? He's got the opportunity downfield opportunity for a wide receiver which is rare today apparently with a quarterback who just doesn't care he doesn't mind walking into danger plays just wants to push the ball downfield and Alshon Jeffrey is perfectly suited for that style of offense I think it's a perfect fit Alshon Jeffrey Carson Wentz for whatever reason the touchdowns haven't materialized this year but I think they can as the schedule loosens in the second half do you think that Alshon Jeffrey can be a top five fantasy receiver the rest of the way I sure hope so. I have him a lot, and it's been a lot of the, There's been a lot of times where, for whatever reason, Wentz just threw a shitty pass to to Jeffrey in the end zone. It's bad luck. Yeah, it's bad luck. Uh, so I, I I don't know about top five, but I think that. Well, this is what I'm saying. Because of the smoothing out of the wide receiver one tier, it's not a big leap to get into the top five. <laughs> it's a rhetorical trick, Chad. It sounds a lot more impressive than it actually is. Sad face emoji. I do think you'll improve, though, in the second half. If there was a prop bet in Vegas for will a wide receiver outscore his peers, I would bet on Alshon Jeffrey. In fact, they have that. No halftime. So if you go to nohalftime.com, enter the promo code UNDERWORLD, 
then you can play prop bets Alshon Jeffrey against other wide receivers. I highly recommend doing that, especially at the end of the season. Your fantasy team's been eliminated. That's fine. We have no halftime. Now, has there been a better source of wide receiver fantasy value in fantasy drafts over the past five years than Larry Fitzgerald? Oh, no, he's a beauty. He just... Isn't he so just... He's sublime. Yeah, he just takes such good care of himself. He's he's amazing. Every year, he doesn't get bumped up where, what his production was, and every year, he just keeps doing the same thing over and over again. I like to imagine your cheat sheets that have either Larry Fitzgerald highlighted with a yellow highlighter or circled. Tell me that is somewhere in a drawer of yours. No, unfortunately not. Look, you got to lie there, Chad. You got to lie there. You got to give me what I want on that. You got to lie. I always try to draft him a little bit. You got to get him. You got to get him, right? And it's so sad what's happening to him. Watch him produce anyway. You know, that's the thing. We know Will Fuller's toast, right? He's droppable. You could argue Jordy Nelson's droppable. It's sad, but it's true. In a shallow league, Jordy Nelson's absolutely droppable. But you can't drop Larry Fitzgerald. He's had too much success, even with bad quarterback play throughout his career, to drop him. He also runs close to the line of scrimmage routes that even Blaine Gabbard can complete. So do not drop Larry Fitzgerald. Do not fret. Continue to start him. I would start him this week. Don't bench Larry Fitzgerald just yet just because of the quarterback play. He's that good. He's a Hall of Famer. He's Larry Fitzgerald. I don't know why I just went. It wasn't a question. I just just wanted to say all those things. (laughs) I don't think too many people were thinking of dropping him. Now there's questions about should we be starting him and... Until further notice, my recommendation is start Larry Fitzgerald. But I think this goes along with what you've been saying, which is you don't overthink a player like Larry Fitzgerald. You just draft him. That's all you do. You just don't overthink certain core truths, which is that Larry Fitzgerald's going to deliver. Now, under what circumstances should fantasy gamers be considering rookies, particularly in the later rounds? And in what situation should fantasy gamers be considering these handcuffs in the later rounds, especially the rookie handcuffs. Like we talked about with Aaron Jones. Like, were you also drafting Jarek McKinnon? Like, can you give us the the profile of the type of backup running back that you were attracted to in the later rounds this year? Well, McKinnon fits that profile. I didn't draft McKinnon, but I did add him extensively throughout the season before Cook got hurt on waivers at least. So I have a lot of him, but um, I like these Pass catching fast running backs, you know, Kamara fits that profile. Um, you know, there's tons of them. Marlon Mack. Yeah, he's another one. Um, yeah, the, these these are the rookies that are exciting because oftentimes they're high draft picks uh, and backing up an aging, you know, guy. Indianapolis just wants to keep pounding gore. You know, Oof. some coaches are a little smarter and they, they get their rookies involved that are just better players. Um that's why Peyton shipped Peterson out of town, even though they signed him to a deal, you know. Um, the receivers generally take a little longer in tight ends. Um, but then you got the New York kid, Ingram. Um, that's a little different because he's not doing a whole lot of inline blocking. And st- That's right, yeah. Learning the dual role of a tight end at the NFL level is incredibly difficult. Yeah, I also focus on the satellite back plus. We talked about Jarek McKinnon. I look at him as a satellite back plus, someone who's not simply a third down back. He has the stature 
and the history of production going back to the college level to step up and be a primary back when called upon. So that's why I think a guy like Duke Johnson is a good target. Another one. Because if something happens to Isaiah Crowell, and it hasn't happened yet, but we're talking about hypotheticals for backup running backs, well, Crowell could get suspended. Crowell could get hurt. And that elevates Duke Johnson where there's no other running backs in that number three running back chair. That's the other thing you can look at when you're trying to decide which running backs to target later in the draft. It's huge. See who the number three running back is. If the number three running back is Matthew Days, then that elevates the value of Duke Johnson as an injury stash handcuff. And the beauty is on a bye week, you can play Duke Johnson in flex as well as have that upside if something happens above him on the depth chart. So that's why I like to target the Jarek McKinnon and Duke Johnson prototypes. They're typically misunderstood as one-dimensional pass catchers. But if you go back to their college resume with a Duke Johnson, and even Aaron Jones was misunderstood. You need to go back to his UTEP resume. And like you said, you have friends watching his UTEP tape, and they can tell you, report back, oh, 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 yeah. So this this Aaron Jones kid, yeah, so he could be an all-purpose guy when called upon. And that changes the whole game, especially when Aaron Rodgers is back there. Then, oh, wait a second. This guy's upside is top 10 back. Oh, that's what I need to be focused on. Yeah. You're, you're so right, though, about the third down backs situation, though. It's a very, very good thing to look at um, to tie break on which handcuffs to go after. Right. Now, a Tariq Cohen is 170 pounds. That's different. right? That is a proper satellite back. A guy like Darren Sproles can never reach true bell cow status in the NFL. He's just not big enough. Even though he was a bell cow at Kansas State, at the NFL level, just doesn't quite have the size to absorb an 80% opportunity share. It's never going to happen. But you find those guys in that 210-pound threshold, those Duke Johnsons, those Alvin Kamaras, that's the place to look. Now, who was the call you were most proud of this year? Talked about Todd Gurley. Talked about Adam Thielen. Who else? Zach Ertz. Oh, you got Ertz too? Damn you, Chad! Oh, that—that's the teams I don't have. Didn't have Clay on. I had Ertz or Clay. You have Ertz and Clay. Oh, weeks two through six. Could anyone even talk to you, or were you just floating on a cloud somewhere? A lot of bad players with Ertz on a lot of teams okay. too. So. <laughs> oh, that's the thing about fantasy football. Always finds a way to humble you. All right, so last question. Get you out of here on this last question. Here we go. You ready? Which player will be next year's Adam Thielen? So do you qualify for truther status on any player in the NFL? A compar- an easy comparison to him because he was pretty damn good last year in his own right. Um, just like Woods is doing now, is Woods going to go around that territory? I, I think Woods will be good again next year. Goff's getting better and Woods is good. Is there a guy that's not a starter? He's been in the league for a few years, maybe undrafted, but you've either heard about him or you've been keeping your eye on him. He's a guy you're always monitoring and you're always hoping that he catches a break. Who's that guy? Okay, I, I got one for you. Um, might not be the best one, but without having one in mind ahead of time, Johnny Smith. Yeah, oh, good one. What have you heard about him? He just passes the eye test watching him plays fast and big and explosive um all he needs is a chance um all my walker teams that i have i have him 
on them and I'm not going to drop him. Just that's my Walker handcuff going forward. So it's a great call. He is small school David Njoku. So he was at FIU when Njoku was at Miami. So in the southeastern tip of the United States, we had two of the most athletic tight ends in the history of college football, both playing at the same time, just down the road from one another. Are you familiar with a player named Jeff Janis? Oh, yeah. The ship sailed, isn't it, finally? I don't know. We've all been enamored with him for years. I would tell you that Jeff Janis is more than a myth. Jeff Janis is real because we could have had this conversation about Julian Edelman four years ago. We could have had this conversation about Chris Hogan two years ago or Adam Thielen a year ago. There is going to be a guy who is discarded by the NFL by teams that cannot self-scout for whatever reason. And they resurface somewhere else and they find themselves on a team that knows how to put their tools to good use. The Packers have squandered Jeff Janis. And that's okay. That's okay. He went to Saginaw Valley State. There is a player personnel director in the NFL who graduated from Saginaw Valley State and I know is monitoring Jeff Janis. The team he represents is the New England Patriots. Are you familiar with a player named Jeff Janis? The team he represents is the New England Patriots. Interesting. And that's the show. I'm going to go out on that. That's all I'm going to say. I'm just putting that out there. For me, I've always thought Justin Hunter is going to, and then he never does. Absolutely. The difference between Justin Hunter and Jeff Janis is that Justin Hunter could never put it together at Tennessee. Whereas Jeff Janis didn't go to a big-time program, so we don't know what he would have been at a Wisconsin, but he was at Saginaw Valley State, and he was very good at Saginaw Valley State. If former lacrosse player turned slot receiver on hard knocks, Chris Hogan can become a WR1 in fantasy, which he is at this moment, looking at fantasy points per game because of the smoothing. I'm just telling you right now, I want to be on the record with Chad Schroeder just for the future. This is not just hokey-dokey conspiracy theory, Jeff Janis, you know, athleticism nonsense. It's real. Uh, then I did listen to a little bit of uh, some of your episodes. Um, found it entertaining and interesting. You guys are a little more analytical than I am, a lot smarter than I am. Uh-oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, you're already sandbagging? We're only a minute in. I'm good at using other people's knowledge to do well, not, not my own. There's no way that you can have a preponderance of individuals in a, a high-stakes setting basically point out one dude consistently as the guy and have it just be dumb luck, have it just be, oh, you know, circumstance beyond my control. You know, I'm on to you, Schroeder.
you've either been on a roll or your brain is wired in a way that it, you know, you can be really smart, what I've found, but you can also outthink yourself plenty in this game, right? That is so true. And I think that is one of my biggest strengths is not doing that. He took Kenny Britt, I think, as his seventh wide receiver. What I found being at the FFPC is you could sometimes see people doing that. On their face, 30 seconds before their pick, you could see, oh, this guy's this guy's about to blow it. <laughs> <laughs> In that, that FFPC format, um, it, it can create stupid mistakes if, if you aren't disciplined and stay the course. With the tight end, uh, it's very easy to panic. I did that. I fully did that. Are you familiar with a, a tight end named Tyler Eifert? Trap tight end of the universe. Touchdown injury trap of the, probably our lifetimes. Yeah, I, I can't believe I drafted him. I drafted him my fair share, about neutral. But I, looking back, that was just asinine. Oof. Yeah, looking back, I'm like, wait, wait, what's his yards max? Wait, ever? What? What am I doing again? AJ Green's there. What? What? So, yeah, and that's even, we didn't even know Bernard would be such a bust. If we knew Bernard would be such a bust, then you could make some argument about, you know, short and intermediate routes. But, uh, the hindsight, I think, is pretty strong on him. I'm not even talking about the injury. The injury happened, and then you so you do a little bit of, like, week two post-mortem, right, on your selections. It's not much hindsight bias there. It's mostly just, hey, we kind of fucked up here with this Tyler Eifert pick. Yeah, it's a shitty pick. Process-wise, I feel much better about my Ebron pick than I do the Eifert pick. Yeah, it's a shitty pick. Just like you have chess fans at home breaking down Bobby Fischer's moves against Kasparov, or wait, did he play Kasparov? I don't think he played Kasparov. I think it was someone else. He played someone else. You move ADPs. That is not true. You move ADPs. That is not true. You love a guy, and then you feel like you got sniped because someone reached for him even more than you were prepared to reach for him, and that guy stinks! He has a terrible season! And you think back and go, oh wow! I almost reached for that guy! Holy shit! I don't know if I'm making any sense. Now you have your ear to the grindstone, right? You have your ear... Wait, that's not the grindstone. I think I, I, think I mixed a metaphor there. He took Kenny Britt, I think, as his seventh wide receiver. They want to win the most difficult way possible, right? I agree with you. I'm a, I'm a, a, a genius fantasy football podcast. I agree with you. The Roto Underworld Airwaves. Yes, there are numerous FFPC and high stakes players listening to Roto Underworld Radio, and we did a segment on Funches every single show. Yeah, that's exactly right. In fairness, what happened to me was I was very bullish on Thompson in 2016. <laughs> so was I. Yeah, I was going to just mention Denver, and then you did. You beat me to it, but I would make an exception for Russell Wilson a little earlier at times. Um, That's the guy, right? Isn't he just the guy? If you had to pick a guy, the ceiling is so high, but the floor is high, too. <laughs> I understand why anyone gets excited about Russell Wilson. I couldn't agree more. It turns out I was missing nothing. I was missing nothing. I was missing nothing. The only people missing anything 
were members of the Carolina coaching staff who continued to play Kelvin Benjamin over Devin Funches. Thank God someone turned their brain on in Carolina. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I smell something. I think that's Xavier Howard. I couldn't agree more. It's not a big leap to get into the top five. <laughs> it's a rhetorical trick, Chad. It sounds a lot more impressive than it actually is. Sad face emoji. I couldn't agree more. Don't bench Larry Fitzgerald just yet just because of the quarterback play. He's that good. He's a Hall of Famer. He's Larry Fitzgerald. I don't know why I just went I, It wasn't a question. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to say all those things. You're, you're so right, though, about the third down backs situation, though. It's a very, very good thing to look at, um, to tie break on which handcuffs to go after. Oh, you got Ertz, too? Damn you, Chad! Oh! hey, we kind of fucked up here with this Tyler Eifert pick. Yeah, it was a shitty pick.